So on page 212 of Great Jewish Treasures, we have a bris knife. This is a knife that a male, somebody that does bris mila, circumcisions, uses uh, when he's doing it. So um, what's so special about this knife? So this knife was owned by the Ribnitzer Rebbe. The Ribnitzer Rebbe was a, a great Hasidic Rebbe who served as, with great bravery and courage um, in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, after World War II, when the Russians tightened their grip on all of their, uh, the countries under their control, including um, the one where, um, where Rabbi Abramowitz, who was the Ribnitzer Rebbe, uh, was. Today it's uh, in Moldova. Moldova is one of the countries actually near Ukraine where a lot of Ukrainians are taking refuge. Um, so he was, uh, so we know the Soviets after World War II, uh, they uh, completely forbade Jews and really all religions from practicing their religious beliefs. And so when the Jews wanted to do anything, they had to do it very secretively. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't do it publicly because if they would, they would be thrown in jail in Siberia forever. Sorry? They were and communists were very anti-religion. They didn't want any. They they believed that the mother country. You have to all. Yes, at the time, until like you know perestroika and uh, glasnost. What? Now, right in the in the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, um, when Gorbachev came to power, Yeltsin and Gorbachev, they basically undid the Soviet Union because it was really falling apart. They communism was pretty much a failure, and they wanted to become part of like the more westernized societies, which were doing much better than the communist society. Like they, you know, you know, the West is always seemingly very successful and the people wanted that so it was like almost a bloodless revolution you'd think in order to stop communism you'd have to like you know have this uh, war between America and Russia and see who wins but the Russians themselves they they yeah they sort of surrendered themselves and they said listen you know we're opening up our society and um, that's when, you know, the Berlin Wall, they started chiseling away at the Berlin Wall. And uh, uh, it was, a, I remember it very, very well. It was like a very strange period in history that like all of a sudden all of the Soviet countries were declaring independence and breaking away from Russia. And that's really the root of today's war. The war that's taking place between Ukraine and Russia really comes about because of that period, because... Uh, Boris uh, Vladimir Putin, who is uh, really from that, before, you know, from the communist era, he was a KGB agent, and so he really still remembers the glory days of Russia, the Soviet Union, with all of the sat many satellite countries under its gris grasp, and he wants to go back to that. So he sees like all of these countries that are moving towards NATO, moving towards uh, the West. He wants to stop that, so that's why he went and attacked Ukraine, because he wants to make Ukraine part of Russia again. He just wants the, the, the power. He doesn't want to go back to communism. He wants to go back to... He wants... He, he, he wants to go... I thought he failed. No, I thought he's very, like, uh, the opposite. He's very, like, uh, No, he wants to try to bring back, like, a lot of the glory 
of the Soviet Union. Like he wants to be imperialistic, he wants to control, you know, all that real estate again, he wants to be very powerful, and, uh, you know, and as a result, so he just went into this, this unprovoked war because he didn't want to acknowledge that Ukraine is uh, moving t- more closer to the West. He wanted to stop that. He, they were interested maybe in joining NATO, and they didn't want, he didn't want that. So because of that, he did this crazy war, and now he's threatening nuclear, nuclear uh, you know, attacks against uh, the West because the whole world is against him now. It's a, it's a very interesting time. It's also a little scary because if, you know, on one hand, on one hand, you know, they're going to be brought to their knees economically and with sanctions and with uh, no, all the European countries are not allowing Russian airplanes to fly overhead. So it seems like, you know, yeah, go, go west. But the problem is that if Putin gets desperate enough, if he's like completely cornered by the world, you know, and his economy is in, is in, you know, terrible situations and the whole world is against him, then God forbid he's liable to do anything. And so it's a little scary, the times that we're living with, but, but hopefully Mitzvah Hashem will all turn out uh, well. So... Well, sorry, cycling, that knife doesn't look as sharp. It doesn't look um, like yeah, but it, 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 it is. It's sharp enough to do the job. Um, Right. So, so this Rebbe was, even though that, um, that it was during the Soviet era and there were people that were always looking and spying on the Jews and making sure that they weren't keeping Shabbos, they weren't keeping kosher, they weren't uh, keeping any of the halachot, but um, this brave man, the Ribnitzer Rebbe, uh, was, uh, he went and he... Uh, he was a very, very holy man. He did. Uh, he always um, uh, did all the mitzvahs openly. He didn't care about the government restrictions, and uh, he worked as a shaykhet, which means that he shafted animals, even though that was a real no-no. And he served as a mayel, and he taught Tyra, and he didn't care. Like whatever they did, to, whatever they might do to him, it wasn't really. It didn't bother him too much. He wanted to be a servant of Hashem. He wanted to really. Uh, you know, strengthen whatever communities were still left uh, in the Soviet Union. Now, a lot of the communist officials knew what he was doing, uh, but they, uh, they revered him. Like, they knew that there was something very special and holy about him. Um, and uh, once he was taken into custody for his activities, but he was set free when he promised that the judge's wife would be cured from her illness if he was released, and that's what happened. So he was released, and then he and then she was cured. He had it was famous that he was a miracle worker, like he was able to do, um, uh, you know, real miracles. And uh, but this knife serves as the iconic piece for him because he really, um, you know, was meiser nefesh. He gave up his life in order to perform the mitzvah of mila in the Soviet Union. Now. This, um, I'll just tell you one story that's in the sidebar over here about the Ribnitzer Rebbe, that um, when he was still living in communist Russia, and we'll speak about afterwards what happened to him after he left Russia, but so he was contacted by a woman who asked him to perform a bris on her newborn son. And then when questioned about the baby's father, she said that he was a communist party official, and would never agree to a bris being performed on his child. 
and she was therefore contacting the Rebbe to inform him that her husband was away and that the only chance to do the mitzvah was if it was done immediately. So you can imagine the Rebbe's wife, the Rebbetson, was not happy. This is like real suicide. You go and you're giving a bris to a communist official's baby uh, when he's not home. You can imagine like what could happen to the Rebbe. And his, Rebbe, his Rebbetson says, I don't allow you to go. I do not want you to go. This is crazy. And he went anyway, even though he was really placing his life in danger. And he set out with one of his chassidim, who was supposed to be the sandik, the person on whom the baby is rested during the bris. Anyway, they traveled through the night, and they used dangerous side roads to avoid attracting attention. And then they arrived at the home where the bris was to be held. The Rebbe immediately made the preparations for the bris and performed it without delay. After the bris, a problem arose. The bleeding could not be stopped. The baby began to turn blue, and everyone was terror-stricken, fearing the worst for the baby and for themselves, because if the baby died, that would really not be good. So the Rebbe realized that natural means would be of no help. He closed his eyes and repeated, which is something we say at a bris, that means that with your blood you shall live. The Rebbe's face changed color due to his intense concentration, and suddenly the bleeding stopped, and the baby regained his natural color. When the Rebbe's chassid mentioned something about a miracle, the Rebbe simply replied with a Talmudic teaching, mitzvah en that envoys for a mitzvah are protected from harm. So that was, uh, that's the, the piece that I wanted to share with you about the Ribnitzer Rebbe. This is his knife. What's interesting is that uh, after the Rebbe left the Soviet Union, in 1970, so he moved to the Matistarf section of Yerushalayim, and then he lived there for a few years before moving to the United States. I think he lived in Los Angeles for a few years until he settled in Muncie. And if you ever want to go to a very, very chashava kever, to a grave that of a tzaddik, I would highly recommend going to the Ribnitzer Rebbe's grave. It's in Muncie. If you want to know where it is, I could uh, easily... Uh, Put it on a ways for you, but it, thousands of people go there a year, especially on his yard site. I've been there; it has like uh, tens of thousands of people from all walks of life go there. Uh, and you could daven for anything that you want, and if it's the right thing for you, Hashem will give it to you right away. I know this from personal experience. I once needed something very badly, and um, and for months and months I wasn't getting it, and um, and. I was waiting for somebody to call me, and uh, anyway, he was supposed to sponsor a certain project that I was working on. It was actually, was it this? It might have been this book in a second. Um, I was looking for a sponsor for one of these books that I wrote, and I was waiting and waiting, waiting, and the guy did not call. So I went, I was going for other reasons also, but I went to the Ribnitz Rebbe's grave, and... Um, it wasn't this book, but it was a different book. But I went to the Shabbat's grave and, and um, davened there, and then I drove away, and literally 15 minutes later, 15 to 20 minutes later, I was driving, the phone rings, it was the guy, he says, I want to do it. I want to sponsor the book. It was, I think, $25,000. And uh, so it was like, like that. And people go, 
for obviously that's that's more of a you know that's not as important as like let's say getting a shidduch or having a baby if you you know if you're married and um, you know getting a job and and whatever all these important things. So if you're in need for anything, and I think we're all in need of something, uh, it's a very good place. Not so far to go. You don't have to fly to Ukraine. You don't have to fly to Russia. You don't have to fly to Eastern Europe, Western Europe. Yes, of Ribnitz, correct. And um, he is a. I heard, uh, I heard a story of him with Hanukkah candles and with the Hanukkah candles and the baby. I'm not really sure. Uh, yeah, I also like. I'll tell you a cute story that I love to say over. Um, he used to have the minig that he would only daven with a minion of 10 people that has not davened yet. Like we know you're allowed to, if you, let's say you have a majority of people that uh, didn't daven yet, you can you know, have a few people that already davened and you can, make a, you can make a minion of 10 people. But he was always mocked, but I need 10 people that didn't daven. I want, you know, he didn't want to rely on any of uh, these leniencies. He wanted to have 10 daveners for Minchan. And he only had a minion of, of exactly 10 because it was in his house in his later years and it was a big privilege to daven in his minion. So one day uh, there was a guy who wanted very much to be part of his minion for Mincha and he just like walks into his house around Mincha time and even though he davened already, he just, he wanted to like, you know, just get by and just be part of the minion. So the Rebbe with his holy eyes looks at him and says, hey, you davened already. You know, I only want people that didn't daven. So he like walks out. He's sort of like busted. He like kicked out, you know, but like he was smiling from ear to ear. So somebody said to him on the way, hey, dope, like why are you smiling? You just got busted. You just got kicked out by the Ribn Sarebbe from his minion. Like what, what's, why are you smiling? That's not a cause to be happy. You should be embarrassed. So he says, you don't understand. He said, the Rebbe looked at me and he said that I davened already. He says, that means that that thing that I did before, like, you know, davening, like, I, I, I was spacing out the whole time, you know, he considers that a davening. He says, for me, that was very, that was, that was big news, that I know that, at least in Shemayim, it registered a little bit, like it was considered a little bit like... Exactly. Like, you, know, you think like, okay, my, my Shemayim is like, it's not even there, like I'm thinking about everything but... But he, so he was happy that the Ribnitz Rebbe at least noticed that he had, uh, that he had Daven. Okay. Um, Rob, how would, how would like, great God speaking and Rabban be able to, is it like, is it Ruch Kodesh kind of? It's something like Ruch HaKadosh. I mean, we, we know that there's really not, you know, Ruch HaKadosh today. Right, do, it's not. It's yeah. not as, it's, but, but there, there's definitely... There's definitely traces of Ruch HaKadosh. Something. So there's something, you know, that G'daylam, certain G'daylam have, that you definitely, there's definitely something special about it. Like, yeah, one of my friends one time, he walked into a big Rav's house of prayer, it was Rebbe Rav Kamenevsky, and he was a Kohen, and the Rav looked at him and said, oh, you're a Kohen, I can see wow. right on your face. Like, yeah. Yeah, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, they say, has, has the ability to, there's something called Chachmas HaParzav, which means that you can look at somebody's face, parts of his face, and you could see like everything about the person from looking at their face. So it's a pretty cool thing to have, you know. I mean, it's scary, but you could, you know. So 
there was so one so somebody came to Reb Chaim Kanievsky's house, and Reb Chaim was like looking at his forehead. He says, "Everything okay?" Is like you know, he says, "Are you makbid on 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 tarfus? Like, are you sure that all that everything that you eat is always all the meat that you eat is kosher?" He says, "Yeah, of course. Uh, well, why not?" He says, uh, "I don't know. I see like a cow on your on your forehead." And I see a cow on your forehead, and it's uh, you know that's a sign that you're some, there's something off about your kashras. So I don't know. I, I buy only strictly kosher meat, and I only eat in kosher restaurants, and only go to kosher affairs. So he says, just do some research, look into it. Anyway, he had started recently taking like a new medication, and the the pills were coated with some like animal fat that was trace. Gelatin or some something from a trafe in a part of the animal. He just had started doing it, or Chaim was able to see, um, you know, to see that on his forehead. So that's like a, a shlikel ruach hakaidish. Like I always said that if I was be entrepreneurial, I would sell like ski masks outside of Chaim Kanievsky's house, you know, because I wouldn't, you know, if people would know like what he's looking at. When you think, you know, you go over to him and you say, you know, give him shalom, you think like everything is amazing, and you're fooling him, like he knows everything about you. He can see right through you. So I would sell like masks covering the forehead and whatever. But um, there's another cool story I just heard of Chaim, that he went into a car. Somebody offered him a lift, and he went into the car, and suddenly, like, the car wouldn't start. The ignition didn't start. And then he, he got out of the car, you know. Suddenly, the ignition started. Then, he, uh, and then they turned it off. He got back into the car. The ignition did not start. Anyway, he says, what's the story with this car? So he said, so the guy says, I don't know, it's, uh, I borrowed it from my son. Anyway, it turns out that his son um, was dealing with ribis. His son was like dealing with, in- he was taking interest from people, and that interest was, uh, was used to buy it, to make the payments on the car. And so, you know, you're not allowed to get it. That's right. So, you know, the car itself would not start because it didn't want to serve the tzaddik. Right now, you know, if, you, you're, if you're questioning this, the, the story and whether it's true or not, like they say about the Chavetz Chaim, I don't know if it's true or not, but they don't say stories like that about you and me. So there's definitely... What? He told you to grow a beard. He told you to grow a beard? You met him? What? Yeah, twice. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a, he, he's very, he happens to have a very good sense of humor. So, like, when you... Uh, when he when there's a big line, unless you have like pole or something, you could you know schmooze them privately. But if you're just online to get a bracha, so he says buha, buha is a bracha batslacha. Like it's it's a rashi table. Says buha, bu, says like a thousand people. And you go buha, buha, buha. You know and they're just like filing they by. Kick what? They kick, like a whole yeah, yeah. They they keep moving. You know, and he says buha. So so the last guy online. You know, said, hey, Rebbe, like, I'm the last guy. Could you give me, like, a little bit more of a bracha? Like, there's no one else behind me. There's no need to... He says, okay. Boo-ha. <laughs> so, Reb Chaim Pincha Scheinberg. Reb Chaim Pincha Scheinberg. Um, this is what he looked like. The story is on page 308. Um, he is famous for what? Wearing tzitzis, right? He wore um, many, many pairs of tzitzis, sometimes as many as 150 
pairs of scissors. Like he looks, you know, if you ever saw him, or you probably didn't see him because he was Nifter in 2012. So you guys are probably before pre-bar mitzvah even, right? But anyway, um, I once gave him a ride actually in Brooklyn once. Uh, but he looks like he's a bulky man, right? He looks like he's like, like a football player, but he's not. He, uh, you know, he's very skinny, extremely frail, like a real old skinny rabbi, but he wore so many pairs of tzitzes that he looked like very, you know, very, very uh, big. Why, why did he wear tzitzes? Oh, very good question. Why would he do that? That's not a huge... Normally we just wear one pair. I don't know, Erbil Yashiv wore one pair. Chaim Kanievsky wears one pair. Like, why all of a sudden to wear 150 pairs? So that's a very, very good question. He was a very big tzaddik. He was a huge Talmud Chacham, a big Paisik. He lived in Matistarf. He was born in 1910, died in 2012. He was a Rashiva of Torah R. Interestingly, um, he happened to grow up in America. He was, born, he was raised, born in Poland, but raised in America. They say that he was the greatest handball player in, in New York in his time. He was a very athletic kid, maybe he was, and they say a lot of stories about him like that. Like, um, supposedly, I don't believe it, but like they say he made a kiddish one year, like one Shabbos, like when he was very old already, like the, one of the biggest Shabbos in the world, because he heard that the Yankees had won like the World Series and it didn't affect him at all. Like he was such a Yankee fan all his life not that he was following them, but like when he was a kid, he was a major Yankee fan, so it never, he was never able to get it totally out of his system. And then when it finally got out of his system to the degree that he heard that they won, it didn't, he couldn't care less, then you know, he made a kiddush on Shabbos, or he, he was very happy with that development. In any event, um, it just shows you that like, being a good ball player doesn't mean that you can't be a tamachacham, you can't become a gadol. Um, I think they asked Rav Pam once, a Rebbe once asked Rav Pam, if it's okay for me to play ball with my Talmidim. You know, could I play basketball with my Talmidim? Can I play hockey, uh, ba- baseball? Is it okay? So Rav Pam said, only if you're good. If you're good, you, a Rebbe can play ball with his Talmidim. If you're, if you're horrible, if you stink, then it's a chil Hashem to play ball with your Talmidim. <laughs> you know, this is like, he can't play for his life, but like, your rabbi happens to be very good. Mirsky is excellent in, in balls. So that's, yeah. and, anyway, so the question was asked why he wore 150 pairs. And great question. There is much conjecture as to the reason. Meaning there's a lot of different reasons that people um, you know, have hypotheses about why. Uh, some believe that the custom began as a merit for Scheinberg's daughter who was ill and he wanted to get additional schusim for her, and that's why he started wearing extra tzitzis at one point in his life. Others think that it was to fulfill all possible opinions regarding the laws of tzitzis, meaning not all these tzitzis are the same. Each of them have maybe, or a lot of them are slightly different, so he wanted to like cover all his bases in terms of different chumras, different hidurim, with the beged, with the, with the, the actual strings themselves. Um, Others assert that he wore multiple garments in order to fulfill the mitzvah for those Jews who are lax in this particular halach. A lot of people don't wear tzitzit, so you want it to like sort of you know cover for them, as it were. But they asked, you're asking, you probably wonder why why doesn't somebody just ask him? Like, why do you have to come up with these theories? Well, they actually asked him. And when they asked him, he said that he wore so many pairs simply because each and every one is a mitzvah. 
Meaning every time, every, let's say I would tell you, you know, every, um, you know, every watch you wear, I'll give you a, a million dollars. You know, you would, you, would, you would be wearing watches all over your sleeves. On your neck, you get a big watch. You get, you know, ankle watches and toe watches, right? Because you're getting a million dollars for every watch. It's a no-brainer, right? So he felt that, like, if I'm getting a million dollars for every pair of tzitzis in Shemayim, so then I, I want to wear as many as I can. So he stacked them up. He wore, like, a, you know, like, mamish, like, up to here tzitzis. And, uh, and that was uh, the story. So I put here in the book, this is an actual pair of his tzitzis. This is, this is one, of, one of the many tzitzis that he wore. And it's, it's, it was sold at an auction at a, you know, a very high premium because it was owned by Rav Scheinberg. What, Listen, what did they go for? I don't know. Probably well over a few thousand dollars. It doesn't work here without the mitzvah, right? If you, if you do like a tefillin. Right. So or tefillin you like can't... Tefillin you could put on like Rabbi Tam's tefillin, you know, if you want. Like, but, oh, right. But, you know, that's, but that's not at the same time. You know, I mean, I think Sardim do sometimes put on two pairs of tulin at the same time. But, you know, there's not so many, I guess, mitzvahs that you have an opportunity to do multiple mitzvahs simultaneously. Listen to this story. This is a sidebar. Whenever I was able to put, like, a story in a sidebar, you know, this is what I call a sidebar, like something, you know, just like an extra, you know, dimension to this, uh, this piece. Listen to this story. When Rabbi Scheinberg was once fundraising in Florida on behalf of his yeshiva, a wealthy woman said to him, I would like to buy a pair of the Rosh Hashiva's tzitzis. He replied, I don't mind selling the tzitzis, but you will have to give a thousand dollar donation to the yeshiva and you will have to replace it with another pair of tzitzis. It's a deal, the woman responded. Why do you want to buy a pair of tzitzis, he asked. The woman explained that her teenage son had given up Torah and mitzvahs. She was willing to try anything to reignite the spark of Yiddishkeit inside him. She felt that the holiness of Rav Scheinberg's tzitzis may do the trick. Upon hearing this, Rav Scheinberg said, please bring your son to me so I can speak to him. When the boy arrived, Rav Scheinberg told him, your mother is prepared to pay a lot of money for a pair of tzitzis for you. I will be glad to give you a pair of mine, but I don't want them sitting in your drawer. I want you to promise me that you will wear them for at least one minute every day. The boy shifted on his feet, hesitating. Eventually he said, Okay, Rabbi, but only for one minute a day. Rabbi Scheinberg exclaimed, Let's shake, on, let's shake hands on it. They shook hands and Rabbi Scheinberg gave him the tzitzis. Initially, the boy wore the tzitzis for only one minute each day. After a short while, he began to wear them for longer and then longer. By the time six months had passed, he was learning in Yeshivas Ar Sameach in Yerushalayim. That's, a, that's an amazing story about Rav I'll tell you one other story and then we'll end. Uh, this is a story that happened to a friend of mine, so I know the story is true because I heard it straight from my friend. My friend was married for, uh, for a good many years, maybe seven, eight years, and he didn't have children, him and his wife. So um, it was known that if you go to Rav Scheinberg, like, you know, like what we said before about the, the Ribnitzer, if you go to Rav Scheinberg, Rav Scheinberg had a very, very strong power of giving brachas. And so, so he went to Rav Scheinberg, and Rav Scheinberg said that if you give your meiser, if you give your meiser money to, uh, to Yeshiva's Tara'ar, which was his Yeshiva, and it was, it was always... 
traveling all around the world to fundraise. You have to, you know, it takes a lot of money to, to cover the budget of a, of a big yeshiva like he had. If you give me your miser, then, then within the year you'll have a baby. So he wasn't making a lot of money. I think he was learning in Kylo, but, you know, so, but miser is miser. It doesn't matter how much you're making. If you give 10%, that's 10%. So, but my friend, instead of giving 10%, decided to write out a check for 20% of his income, and he wrote that out to Tara R. So, because really, it's not, miser is like, is okay, but the real mitzvah, if you really want to be Mekayim, the mitzvah of giving miser properly, you're supposed to really give a chaymish, which is 20%. A fifth. So, anyway, he gave a, he gave a fifth of his of his income to Tara R, and at the end of the year, he was blessed with twins. He had twins. If you would have given mice, you get one baby. Give you give a chaimish, you give double, you get two babies. And that's a, I, this story I know myself. This is not like something that uh, you know one of these legends. I, I I know the guy myself. If you want, we can uh, we can get him on the phone right now. We can call him if you don't believe me. But that is. These are the kaychas that Chachmei Yisrael have, that you know, great rabbis, great Tamid Chachamim have. They have the ability, you said, do they have Ruach HaKadosh? I don't know if it's officially Ruach HaKadosh, but it's definitely traces of divine uh, intuition, divine uh, blessing. They're the conduits to give bracha to people, whether they're alive, and bracha Hashem, we have tzaddikim that are alive today that have the capacity to give brachas, and very powerful ones, and then and sometimes we can go to even rabbis that are no longer living, uh, like the Ribnitzer and like many other tzaddikim. It's interesting, if you go to this cemetery in Muncie, I, my kids love going with me to the cemetery. It, you feel like when you go in, you feel like you're in Eretz Yisrael. There's a special holiness to it. And near the Ribnitzer Rebbe's kever is another rabbi by the name of the... Um, what's his name? Um... The uh, I'm drawing a blank. Um, the the Skolena Rebbe. The Skolena Rebbe is buried like a stone's throw away, like literally maybe thirty feet away from uh, from the Ribnitzer. And if you go to his kever, you see he was very against technology. He was very against like people having smartphones and uh, you know and, and internet and all that. He felt it was like the the you know the scourge of of our generation. It's going to cause our downfall. So people go there to Daven, but to get like really extra bonus points there, they, they bring their smartphones, their tablets, and they break them, and they throw them into the grave. So if you go, if you go to the Skeleton, it's, it's fascinating just to see, like if you, even if you don't, you know, you're not into this, but just to, it's just an experience to go to the Ribnitzer's Kever, and then you go over to the Skeleton Rebbe's Kever, and like within this walled-in uh, grave site, you look down, you see like tons of like devices all smashed. And it's very, very cool. Okay, everybody say. Look at that.